0: Welcome to Reciprocity Podcast, where we discuss the backstories and strategies of photojournalists, sports photographers, documentary filmmakers, and photo editors. Now, here's your host, Brett Carlson. So today's show is going to be one that's very exciting to a lot of people. I know on Instagram, whenever I say anything about Luke Combs or go, I went to Luke Combs show last weekend, I immediately got DMs. Is David Bergman there? Is David Bergman at the show? And I Posted to my story, and I got some more DMs like, oh, David Bergman's there. Well, I did one better. I asked him to come on the podcast. So today's guest is David Bergman. If you know his work, he has covered Bon Jovi, Luke Combs, worked for Sports Illustrated. I think like the sports guys love him, the music people love him. Everybody, you know, pretty much knows David Bergman. He's uh, pretty famous photographer in our industry. So, without further ado, after I've talked you up, maybe a little more than I should have. Uh, how are you doing, to David? It's
1: alright. You can keep bringing it on. I appreciate it. <laughs> he
0: also lives in New York City, which he says is the best city in America. I told him Nashville it was, but eh, you know, we're Nashville's on. great,
1: but New York City is New York City. I mean, it doesn't get much better than that.
0: <laughs> That's right. Um, I actually don't hate New York City. My favorite thing about New York City is Two Bros Pizza. When you can walk in and get a dollar slice of pizza, and like for three dollars, I walk out with two slices of pizza and a coke. Um, There's literally nothing better. Here's the
1: thing about dollar pizza. You can only do dollar pizza after midnight. Like you can't during the day when there's respectable pizza around, you can't go get dollar pizza. But
0: no, I, I do it every time I go to the New York Times for like a portfolio review or meet with an editor. I <laughs> literally always hit the two bros on the way from the train station. <laughs> right, fair enough. I'm a psychopath. Fair so. enough. It's all good. I will happily come to New York, though, and have you show me good New York pizza.
1: There is lots of it. Yeah, Those I've heard. a lot of good New York pizza.
0: I heard Connecticut's better. What? Scranton's actually really good. Scranton's a sleeper. I'm from Pennsylvania, as some of you know. Uh, Scranton's like a sleeper top three pizza, though. All right. It's a tray, though. It's not a I don't pizza. I've never been to Scranton, but,
1: uh, you know, New York pizza is hard to beat.
0: Yeah. I, I'm I, such
1: a New York snob. That's all we've been talking about so far is yeah. how great New York is.
0: That's yeah, all right. So anyways, David, I, we talked a little bit over lunch the other day and started to talk about kind of your career, how you got started. Um, we share a friend in William Snyder, who was my professor at RIT, and you talked about meeting him back at the Olympics. So I just want to hear a little bit about like how you got into photography and how all of this started for you uh, years ago.
1: Yeah, it's funny. I was actually in music first when I was in high school. I was a musician. I was a drummer. And I thought I was going to be a producer. I really wanted to be a music producer. That was, I was sure, 100%, that's what's happening. I had a camera, but I didn't really know what I was doing. You know, I didn't know apertures and shutter speeds or anything. This was back in the 80s. Uh, My first year of college, my freshman year of college, I went to the Berklee College of Music in Boston to Study music production and engineering. I mean, you know, Kurt went to Berkeley. I do, yes. Our mutual friend Kurt, of course, went to Berkeley. Yep,
0: Kurt Ozan251 on Instagram. Go (laughs) give him a follow, Kurt. I love you so much.
1: We love you. He's gonna
0: gonna listen to this one because you're on it. He's never listened to another episode. We love
1: Kurt, but um, who's he's a hell of a photographer now, too. He is. But um, anyway, so yeah, I went to Berkeley for one year, and then for a multitude of reasons, I transferred back to my hometown in Miami, Miami, Florida, which is where I was born and raised. And I went to the University of Miami, Go Canes. And I just like stumbled into the school newspaper one day. I it was the school. There was that one pivotal day in everybody's life, right? And it was the school newspaper and the campus radio station. And I went to both. They were like around the corner in the student union from each other. And I knew I would probably do one or the other, but not both. And the radio station was fine. You know, they had me do like a voiceover and I didn't know, you know, how to do any of that. And um, for whatever reason, that just didn't grab my attention. And then the paper, I walked in the photo editor, who's still a good friend of mine, Mike Roy. Hey, Mike, if you're listening, um, he happened to be sitting there just randomly because he wasn't always in. It was a twice weekly paper. It wasn't a daily. And he gave me two rolls of film and said two rolls of Tri-X black and white film and said, go shoot this over the weekend come back on Tuesday, one o'clock. I'll show you how to process in the dark room right here. And if there's something good, I'll give you an assignment. And I was like, okay, that's cool. I had never really done that. And so I went and shot for the weekend. You know, the rest is history, right? I, I shot, he processed the film, showed me how to process. And I guess he saw something he liked. He gave me an assignment. And then I started working for him uh, on the you know school newspaper staff and then he uh i became the assistant photo editor the next semester and then he graduated of course i became the photo editor eventually the editor in chief of the yearbook and did all of that stuff and so i think also the 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 nice thing was at the university of miami obviously back then this was late 80s early 90s they had a great football team so they were literally playing in national championships every couple of years so i got to cover the university of miami as a student and and back then i don't know if they still do this but uh the school newspaper and the school yearbook got two seat one seat each to travel with the team that's literally how we went to the games. so we were on the team charter so you know it's one of the best teams in the country and i'm sitting on the plane next to these guys right and going to the games and traveling around the country and shooting and i was you know 19 20 years old i didn't know what the heck i was doing but it was a blast and i think that's part of what got me excited about it was doing all that kind of stuff
0: I love how like every time I meet someone younger now or even older that like wants to get into photography or they're getting into it, they're in school for it. They always think it's like some I, I'm not I'm probably generalizing. But I hear a lot of like there was this rocket ship of destiny that you knew for your whole life you would do this. And I'm like, uh, well, my friends were making photograms of their hands in the dark room. I was actually trying to figure it out when I was in eighth grade. And I was like, well, this is cool. Um, you know, it's always like these trivial moments where it's like, Hey, try this film. And you're like, okay, (laughs) totally.
1: And, and yeah, a lot of people obviously ask me how I got my start and it really, you know, I can tell you my story and, you know, obviously we're going through it, but it's, um, somebody coming up today, isn't going to do it the same way. I mean, it's hopefully it's inspiring and maybe it's interesting, but you can't copy what I did because there's just no life doesn't work that way. If you want to be a lawyer, a doctor, an accountant, there are, rules, you know, there's a path on how to do that. You go to the right school and then you become a, you know, you get an internship and then eventually you become a partner, whatever it is, you know, but for creative fields, we're creative people. So it all happens creatively. And also supply and demand is a bit different in this world. Everybody wants to do what we do. So because of that, like nowadays working with the bands that I work with, there's no there's not a Craigslist ad for like the Rolling Stones are looking for a tour photographer, right? It just doesn't happen. Yeah. So how do you get that gig? Well, everybody who does a gig like this will give you a different story on how they got it. So like I said, it's interesting to learn people's stories just for inspiration, but it doesn't necessarily mean you can copy that exactly.
0: I love when we get to these talking points on the podcast, like I love it because for someone, it's what they needed to hear. And that's why I love it. So I love that it's like, you know, maybe this chance encounter it's not some deep, thoughtful moment, but, like, you know, yeah. that's what happened. That's yeah. what stuck. Um, so you, you get that in with the Canes, uh, and like you said, they're hot. This is, like, a big time now. Mm-hmm. They're a big team. Um, how did that transition from school to after school? I imagine that had to be part of a, f- a factor, though, based on what I know about your career.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was shooting all the games, and, and you get to know people, right? On the sidelines are photographers from the Miami Herald and the local, you know, the Fort Lauderdale Sun Sentinel and Sports Illustrated every once in a while and all of these big time photographers. And if you have any inkling of a personality and if you're outgoing enough, you can, you talk to people and you meet people and you see the same faces on the sidelines over and over and they get to know you and you get to know them. And eventually, you know, I started freelancing and uh, it was actually my first sort of big friend. Somebody approached me Gosh, if I, if I remember correctly, it was on the orange bowl game used to have, this is crazy. The orange bowl game used to have a, like a media cruise, like a little party for the media a few days. Before. I know they don't do these anymore. This was back, back in the day. But, uh, and I remember this was a cruise, like a little, one of those cruise to nowhere things where there's a bar and a, you know, casino and it or whatever. Used to go in the water exactly, and Exactly. I mean, I was, you know, I'm sure I was underage at the time, but anyway, um, <laughs> And the the uh, UPI photographer, United Press International photographer, which I don't even know. I guess they're still around. But I think not, so, as they're not as uh, prevalent as they used to be. Yeah. But they were still active in Miami at the time, and obviously I'm in a big, big news town, big sports town. So they he approached me and said, "Hey, we're looking for." I mean, in hindsight, they probably wanted cheap young photographers, right? But I thought, well, oh, that's man. changed
0: a lot since. then. Right? That right? It hasn't that's changed still at true.
1: all. But, but um. <laughs> You know, so he was like, oh, we need, you know, some young stringers, which is basically a freelancer for a wire service. So uh, I was like, yeah, sure. And I was still in college, but I started covering Miami Heat games. The Heat were new at the time. This was early nineties and they were a brand new team. And I was all of a sudden like by myself covering pretty much every Heat game, every home Heat game for UPI. And I would have to shoot film. I would leave at halftime. So I had to go back, drive back to the office, process my color film in the, in the dark room, make prints, and then do drum scans to get it on the wire. And those things, they take a long time. A black and white used to take, I think, 15 minutes for a black and white. And so color, you had to do all three passes, CM, you know, uh, CMY, right? Yeah. And um, I don't know if there was a K pass, but anyway. and uh, taking over a
0: half hard. hour just to scan one photo. It was 45 and, uh, minutes, yeah, and yeah. so to
1: get it on the wire. So you'd maybe get two pictures on the wire, and that was it. And I did that for probably the, the better part of a year. Um, covering news and, and mostly sports for them. And then basically I kind of outgrew that a little bit um, just cause you know, you can only grow so much doing those over and over. And I think it was that same photographer told me, you know, you should go to the AP, the Associated Press. And I walked over to the AP office one day with a box full of prints, really having no idea how to promote myself or how to do that. You know, again, I was still like 21 years old or 22 and Phil Sandlin, who was the uh, photo bureau chief in Miami, basically for the state of Florida because Miami used to run the state, um, was nice enough to take a meeting. And next thing I know, I started freelancing for the AP. And that's kind of how it happens. And then a year or two later, I got a full-time staff job at the Miami Herald. And that's really was the beginning of my actual career at that point.
0: Yeah. I love that. Uh, there's so many things from that that are funny. I mean, I always love hearing these stories about times i started in the 2011 or so i started freelancing and uh but i'd love to hear you say like oh i did all this work and i got two photos up. <laughs> and yeah, it's like totally. i talk to like people now and they're just like they're like you know how many pictures do you take how many pictures do you send and i'll be like oh i send like 200 300 pictures from a football game and then they're like that's a lot of pictures and i'm like yeah it is now you go over and talk to the guy who's worked to the paper for 40 years and he used to send six or yep, five totally. it's like no wonder the fo- sports photos were better back then when it's like i
1: mean it's interesting you said because there is some i i have always felt that i remember vividly when digital started and it was this was late 90s and it did change things in that way because of the ease of getting pictures out there not only transmitting them out but even just pulling images from a take right with film you know i would shoot i was a heavy shooter and i i would shoot 40 or 50 rolls of film easy at a football game. But then you bring those back to the office or we used to at the Herald, we used to ship them back usually at halftime and somebody would process them and then they would do the the printing. But if it was a d- an early game, a day game, I'd come back, I'd have all that film and then they would go – a photo editor, an actual real life human photo editor would go through those images. They'd yell at you about, oh, why would you miss this and, you know – What's the point of shooting this picture and whatever? And that made you better, first of all. Which that's unfortunately going gone away. The art of a, having a photo editor, but you would edit down to like two frames or five images, maybe you know. And then because you had to print every one of those, and those took time. Yeah. And you know, you had you're on deadlines, so that was it. You, the, the The process was finding the images. That was the one of the most creative parts of the process. Shooting was part of it, and then finding the image. And I I still work like that today. But certainly I can pull 50 images pretty easily now, you know, but I still try to get it down to like my few best, best, best images.
0: Yeah. I always, I I mean, I harp on this whenever I do portfolio reviews or anything and it's just like, you know, only show what you want people to see. And it's like, I feel like a lot of people fall into the trap of like volume and, and some clients want it, but like as a whole, it's like, if it's not good enough to show someone, like you, you don't need to show them. Well, that here's one, the thing: you know?
1: they're always going to post your worst one. <laughs> yeah, they will. Yeah. It's just it never fails if you send. <laughs> if you send five images and like there's one that's obvious, like this is the best picture, right? There's no question. And then you send two or three more to kind of round out the coverage. And then there's one frame where it's like, if it's, you know, basketball and it's like, oh, that guy had a pretty good game. I don't really have a great picture of him, but I'll send something just because he had a good game. You know, that's going to be the lead photo.
0: Hands down. Hands down. I Guaranteed. Oh, every, so don't every send time. it
1: unless you want it to be in there. And something about portfolios. When I look at portfolios and when I used to do my own portfolios, Um, if you, if somebody, let's say the requirement is we want to see 20 pictures in your portfolio and you have 10 great pictures, then only show 10 pictures, hands down, right? Because The worst that happens from that is the review of that is, oh, my God, every picture is amazing. You're just not experienced enough, right? And you'll get there, right? You know, over time, you'll have more great pictures. We're going to keep an eye on you, kid. You know, like that's what you want. If you show 10 great pictures and 10 mediocre pictures, then you're just mediocre. And that's it. And you never get that first impression back. So you want everything you show. I mean, I try to do that on my social media, right? It's like I don't people who post pictures, professional photographers who post photographs, snapshots of their lunch, like drives me insane. It's like, unless it's a beautiful still life of your lunch, you know, Yeah. it's like, why do that? You have a separate account for that. Maybe if you want to do that, I don't understand it in the first place, but whatever, that's an old guy talking, you know, that's posting. what my story
0: is for. I for don't For energy yeah, drinks stories, and road trips and complaining fine. about stadium food. But
1: that feed, you know, that's up there yeah. forever. That's to me is like valuable real estate. so I try to, I don't post more than one picture a day. I usually post every other day or every three days, you know, during the pandemic, I barely posted at all, but now I'm down. Now I'm back to once a day since I'm working more, but, um, but, yeah, those pictures are going to be up there forever. And that's your portfolio. Yeah. So you want every picture to be great that's yeah. up there. Or as all, good as it can be. Yeah. All bangers. That's yeah. what we
0: call them in the BMX world, banger clips. There you go. Only bangers. Um. So you go to Sports Illustrated at some point, though, too. So Miami Herald, you're doing general assignments. Are you focusing on sports? Are you focusing on music? Like what? You, Miami's a pretty diverse town, so I imagine you could have had an entertainment photographer back then.
1: Yeah, we didn't really have a full-time entertainment photographer. Pretty quickly at the Herald, I became the sports guy. Um, took a few years probably cause they had a couple guys doing that. And then I sort of maneuvered into that position. Uh, not technically, not officially. They didn't do that. They didn't call it that, but you know, my schedule is pretty much like, okay, there's a heat game that night. There's a dolphins game this day. So, uh, they would write me off the schedule on those days, which was nice. And I was traveling for dolphins and hurricanes. And, and then when, if the, when the heat were in the playoffs and the Panthers and the, uh, the Marlins won the world series in 97, the Panthers were in the Stanley cup finals in 96 um, so I was doing all that stuff and it was really great. And yeah, Sports Illustrated obviously was always a dream and a goal. Um, over those years covering all that stuff, I covered my first Olympics in 98, which was in Nagano, which is where I met our mutual friend, William Snyder, cause he was working for the Dallas morning news. I was at the Miami Herald. We were under the same Knight Rider Tribune umbrella. Right. So we worked together. Um, you know, they just had a small team of five or six of us working for KRT servicing all those clients. So, um, Uh, So I was covering Olympics and Super Bowls and World Series and all this. And obviously you meet sports Illustrated photographers and editors and um, people like Steve Fine, who was the director of photography at the time. Um, He knew, you know, we got to know each other a little bit. And then 2001, uh, I was moving to New York City, decided to to move up to the, you know, become the small fish in the big pond. Um, And I went in and had a meeting in late 2000. I went in, I was in New York for a Dolphins game. Dolphins were playing the Jets. And it was a Monday night game. And on Monday afternoon, I think I went in. I wouldn't have been on Monday because they would have been busy. Maybe it was Sunday. Um, I went in and actually met with Steve and said, hey, I'm thinking of moving to New York City. And what do you think? Could I get some assignments? Because they would call me occasionally if they had something in Miami, you know, and that they couldn't get somebody down fast enough for. some. I remember – Deion Sanders was coming out of surgery in Miami one day and they were like, can you get over to doctor's hospital or whatever it is? And, yeah. get him? and, you know, I have Deion in a wheelchair coming out of the hospital or whatever. So they would call me for that kind of stuff. So I, so they knew who I was, they knew I was, you know, somewhat reliable. And so, they, yeah, I went up and met with him and, and he said, ah, I don't know, we'll see. And here's the, here's the, another one of these things that you can't repeat, uh, you know, as far as somebody else can't repeat it is this was right on, right. I had been shooting digital for a few years. Digital was pretty bad back then, right? It was early days of digital, but I was shooting it for the newspaper, but it was just not, it was kind of getting there quality wise for magazines, but not quite yet. And they, they were still shooting film at SI. They were still shooting Chrome slide film and, I come in and and had this meeting, and they said, "Oh, wait, you should digital. We're thinking about doing some digital. How would that work?" And literally, I found myself. The World Series is on the TV. It was the, <laughs> it was the Subway Series. It was the Yankees and the Mets playing, and it was the, It happened to be the game we. Wa- I watched this in the Sports Illustrated office when um, Piazza and um, ugh, the bat throwing incident. Piazza and who was the pitcher? Uh, I'm blanking. I am, I am not knows. a baseball yeah, guy. But I'm not a big baseball guy, but. Um, Clemens. I think it was I think it was Roger. Was it Roger Clemens? Anyway, somebody been. will correct us. But uh, there was a bat throwing incident in the middle of the World Series. And I'm sitting in the office of the managing editor of Sports Illustrated with the director of photography of Sports Illustrated. And it's just the three of us. And we're watching the World Series. It was this out of body experience kind of. And we, we're talking about digital. And by the time I moved to New York in February, they were really serious about it. And so they brought me in to kind of be the digital guy and none of their guys had shot digital before so uh the fir- literally i just moved to new york in february 1st 2001 and two weeks later they sent me back to florida the D- D- daytona 500 Jeez. and here was the thing i'm not a race guy i'm not a nascar guy i don't know anything i literally went out and bought nascar for dummies and read it cover to cover ah, ah. so i knew how it worked and they had all their top nascar guys shooting it and they said just go down there bring your film stuff and then bring the digital stuff just in case there's a rain delay or something because the, the race is on Sunday, but the magazine closes on Monday. So if something went to Monday, they just wanted to have the option. Okay, great. And they had never had digital anything before. Yeah. So, um, I, so I shot as much as I could on Sunday on film. Of course. And then unfortunately, Dale Earnhardt died in that race. That was the race for the last lap. He died at the end of, uh, on turn four. And, he was in a crash and I happened to have on film, I had a picture of him just randomly because I didn't know what I was doing. Uh, he, literally the last picture of him in his car before the race. Like he got in, he put his helmet on. I shot it on, on chrome, on slide film. I wish I had used a little fill flash because it's horribly exposed, but nevertheless, it's the last picture. So that ran in the commemorative, like double truck. And then the next day, all the film photographers left because they couldn't. They're worthless to the magazine on Monday because they can't get their film back in time. So I they had me stay and I photographed people coming to the track and putting flowers down. It was a big memorial, and I went to a local hotel and plugged into a phone line in the lobby and sent like three or four JPEGs in, and they got them in the magazine. And they had never done that before, like having something in that quickly without having to fly film back on a Learjet, which they do for Super Bowls and things, and. So they were thrilled. So it was like this, and then again, just a random coincidence of things that, and then I, so then over the next like three years, I, they had me training their photographers in the ways of digital. Like I literally had to go to every one of the legendary photographers houses and hang out with them during the day and like work with them on the computer and work with them on cameras that, you know, these guys have been shooting for since before I was born Yeah, and then go to games with them and actually shoot digital and work with them. And I did that for a number of years. And then, so that was during the week. And then on the weekends, they would send me to games to shoot games. So it was just this great, uh, you know, perfect storm of things that all happened. And then I became a regular contributor for them. Obviously, everybody got up to speed on digital in a couple of years. And I became a re- just a regular contributor over the next, like, decade for the magazine.
0: That's insane. <laughs> it is that insane. That is like, I've never heard this story. That is mind-blowing. All, every bit of that is crazy. <laughs> That's... Oh man, that happens
1: sometimes. You I'm a know? Dale
0: Earnhardt fan, so that's oh, cool to man. hear that you were there and and witnessed him going in the car the last time. Such that's
1: a, I mean, obviously, you know, you never want anybody to get hurt or, or killed, and you know, but just this weird, I feel connected to him in some way that it was. I'm like sure have to have those last photographs, and then and then to be the guy to document it for SI was crazy. That's crazy. Yeah. It's
0: it's amazing to hear. That wasn't a lifetime ago. That was tw- 20 years ago. That's the thing that's so interesting to me is it's like the speed at which photography has changed over the last 20 years has been mind numbing. Even for me in 10 years, it, the way it has changed is amazing. Totally. And it's like, yeah, I started in 2011, 2012 is when I graduated RIT. So that was when I got like, that was when I was serious. And um, the industry's changed so much in even 10 years. And it's like, I can't even imagine 10 years before then it was like, Oh, I just leave. Like the biggest news event in NASCAR ever happens, the most you know, seven-time champion dies, and everyone's just like, "Well, they'll be worthless because they won't be done by Tuesday." So I'll just see yeah. you later. And yeah. it's just like
1: they couldn't get the film film back. I mean, some of the guys may have stayed and just shot for themselves. Sure, but. but- probably not yeah but <laughs> you know? it's just amazing to think of
0: how that how the world has changed and now but it's like imagine
1: you, imagine what it's going to be like in 10 years though i know 10 years in the future i'll we just can't even point imagine. my
0: eyeballs at spots and <laughs> right? just like dictate i mean we're to getting my, there
1: we are getting yeah
0: and yeah, we are getting there the
1: Eye autofocus and all that oh
0: well we can't eye talk, tracking yeah and all that. i know it's amazing yeah. um so you're at si for some time um it's so i always kind of make the point that like sports can teach you a lot about photography even if you don't want to shoot sports and i have had a lot of sports people on the show because i do sports and i think friends of mine and stuff kind of tell me about it but as we go into the next step of your career what does sports teach you oh yeah i'm wearing a dale earnert shirt realized, while I just we're recording this you are uh actually podcast. wearing
1: dale Earnhardt on your chest right yes now.
0: um this was all meant to be <laughs> um but like Sports teaches you a lot about photography, and William hammered this into my head at school. He's like, you know, I didn't want to be a sports photographer. I still don't really consider myself one, but I like I had no interest in it. But he's like, it'll teach you a lot. What are some of the things that you take away that you think, like, man, even though now I do something completely different, um, I know you're going to make the point. Like, but it's kind of the same. Um, But (laughs) like, exactly where I'm going. Yeah, but like, what what does something like sports teach a photographer that they, you know, maybe people don't have as much interest. Should maybe you know at least put their foot in the water?
1: Um, It's a good question. I mean, I yes, it is, you know, concert photography is very similar to sports photography. I think what I, the way I shoot concerts is very similar to the way I shot sports. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I just think that, I think the most, some, some of the most, the best lessons I learned were honestly at the newspaper because as a photojournalist, I still consider myself somewhat of a photojournalist, even though my work is more commercial now. Um, I just, I, I think I appreciate, and this isn't sports specific, but I think I appreciate the, the act of documenting something for history, right? Like sporting events are a great example. I mean, every game has some importance in history, right? You know, some are more important than others, but, um, you know, you, you might shoot a game and you might just think like, ah, you know, whatever, we're just out here making fun pictures or whatever, but they're going to look back at this stuff. In 50 years, a hundred years, you know, and maybe not, you know, Browns, Bengals, and preseason, but <laughs> you know, you you just never know, right? And I I always love that when I the artists I work for now, you know, whether it's Luke or Bon Jovi or whoever it is, I just I I take it really seriously from a documentary perspective, and that yeah, I mean, Bon Jovi are you know much later in their career, Luke is much earlier in his career, but it's all important and photography lives on, right? It really does. I mean, we look back at pictures now from 50 years ago and even hundred years ago, and it's pretty amazing. Granted, there are a lot more pictures now than ever before, but you know, we have access to the field at games and to backstage at concerts and those kinds of things that most people don't get and most people can't see. So it's a responsibility that I take pretty seriously. So I don't know. I I probably did learn that more from uh, my days in, in journalism, but um, but, yeah, I just I, I really do take that very seriously.
0: Yeah, I, I agree completely. I, I think about that a lot. That It's like, you know, this image will live on for some time, you know. And I always I, I have a very dark joke that I always make when I, I'll be shooting headshots of like the most no name players coming on and off the field. And people are always like, you know, some some guys get it. Some people don't, but I always say, I'm like, somebody's gonna murder their wife someday. Like, you know, like something's gonna happen. Like, we don't know We'd the future. Know. <laughs> we don't know the future. That, but yes. Yeah, like I said, it's whatever a dark it joke. Is. I like dark humor. So, but it's I, I always think that, you know, it's like, you don't know what every person, you, you know what I mean? Sure, know. this guy's not famous now, but yeah. maybe he will be or, yeah. you know, whatever. Well, or, we could have
1: a whole nother three hour discussion about copyright and, you know, I'm legal sure. issues. Yeah. And, and, you know, that's part of it is that owning the rights to, to relicense your work, you know, to control the use of your work. Absolutely. If that guy does go ahead and murder his family, yeah. you know, and you don't own those images, then.
0: I'm going to get my cut, Giddy. Yeah, yeah, You're going to give me go. my cut. There you
1: go. We must be in Nashville. People
0: Magazine is going to send me my check. There you go. <laughs> no. Um, but it is true that there's there there's this, you know, I don't know. There's something about photography that just like, you know, freezing a moment for some reason.
1: I mean, I don't, I don't shoot weddings, but wedding photography, you know, I've had friends say, why is wedding, why are wedding photographers so expensive? And it's like, okay, the dress you're never going to wear again, the flowers are going to die, you know, the food's going to be gone. What's left? The pictures, you know? What do you know of your parents' wedding? What do you know of your grandparents' wedding? It's just the pictures, That's right? It. Even the video, I mean, obviously video quality has gotten a lot better. The old videos are horrible, but- The pictures you you can still look back at those pictures and you get a feeling of like oh those are my grandparents like when they came to this country or whatever it is those are the things that we're gonna remember so we're today we're making history right now you know it may not seem like it when it's happening but our grandkids and our great you know generations from now they're gonna be looking at this stuff
0: that's right yeah Uh I,
1: I was saying that during the pandemic a lot I was telling people go out and document you know. Even if you're locked in at home, just document it. Your kids are doing homeschooling. Your wife's working from home instead of whatever it is. Make pictures of it because yeah. you're going to want – this is history. Like this pandemic was – they're going to – in 100 years, they're going to be talking about this. We, we still talk about the Spanish flu from 100 years ago. I know. They're going to talk about this. So to be able to show your – you know, maybe your pictures won't be in the history books, but they're going to be in your family's books. Yeah. So your grandkids are going to say, oh, grandma, you know, couldn't go to work and she was working at home. What's that old computer look like? You know, like, yeah. it's just, again, it's hard to to look ahead like that, but it really makes a big difference if you just take it seriously and document it.
0: I know. I feel like, like you said earlier, there's been more, more pictures get taken like every day now than there were in like all of history, <laughs> yeah. the previous hundred years or totally. whatever. Um, but I always like think about that as like, I hope enough people that aren't trying to do this as a career take it serious enough that we have because like you think about 50 30 40 50 years ago like people had 35 millimeter cameras which were beautiful files you know not files but you know slides yeah. or whatever good, good quality it was very beautiful quality you know so you can look back at family photos from the 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s and you know, maybe somebody had a quarter to you know quarter 20 or whatever and or 120 each quarter quarter 20 quarter. Yeah, two quarter. Thread, yeah, yeah two and a quarter yeah my bad yeah i'm like blanking Different on my photos. yeah thing. Two and a quarter. Uh, oh, right, and like they I guess, had these beautiful files, yeah. and now I'm just worried. Like I see some of my pictures of my friends' kids and stuff, and I'm like, y'all should really just like get a camera, maybe, like you know, yeah. what I mean? like are you gonna want to look what? back? Even
1: I mean, obviously, I hope everybody uses you know a can a nice Canon camera and of all course. that. Of course, but even your phone or whatever it is, just to, just to keep those files and the, totally. They're gonna they're gonna be important to your family, even if yeah. it's, like I said, not the picture in the history on the cover of the history book, but. You know, as a non-professional photographer, just document it. Just do it, man. It's so – photography is so important.
0: Totally. You know. You are new in Sports Illustrated. You're a contributor to Sports Illustrated. You're working on projects. And then you start photographing Bon Jovi, like, (laughs) which is a little bit of a a change. Yeah. To say the least. What I I know – how did that come about? Like, I know you had probably been working for – it's not like you just went from, like, oh, I was doing the Super Bowl last week, and now Bon Jovi called me and was like, who shot that Giants picture?
1: Um that's funny cuz you know again people do often ask you know how you get that gig and <clears throat> it doesn't happen like that right yeah. people think like oh he saw my photo in sports illustrated and called me up and next thing I'm on the private jet and yeah it doesn't <laughs> happen like that no i mean i'm a hustler right so i'm like we all in this industry you're hustling for work all the time so i always wanted to be doing more music uh the newspaper there wasn't too, there weren't too many opportunities to do it because you know a newspaper will only cover a concert once, a, you know, twice a month or something like that. Yeah. And so it's not, and it has to be a really big show. But when I was at the paper, I, it took me about five years. It was 1996 when I sort of finally realized, Hey, maybe I can like start pitching my own stories. Right. Cause I was a kid and I was the young guy. I mean, they had Pulitzer prize winners at that paper. And, um, You know, I was like, oh, maybe I can just like actually pitch something that I want to do. And so I pitched them an idea that I should go on the road with Gloria Stefan, who was a Miami native and, you know, sort of Miss Miami in a way. And she was just coming back. She had a really bad bus accident in the early 90s and they'd never thought she'd walk again. And she rehabbed and she came back stronger than ever and was on tour again. And she was going to end that tour with five nights, I think, at the Miami Arena, the old Miami Arena. and. So I said, let me go out on tour during the tour. I'll, I'll document it. And then we'll run a big package for the Miami shows. And they said, yeah. And I was like, what? They said, yes. like, <laughs> cow. So it took me a while to get to the Estefans. And actually, because I had to like set it all up and make it happen. And it took a while. You know, they say, yes, you got to talk to this guy. And then that guy doesn't call you back. And, you know, that's sort of the, the typical thing. But eventually I got through and I found myself on the road, on the tour bus with Gloria and Emilio Estefan and they couldn't have been better. They were so nice. Actually, she recently posted on Instagram one of those photos from 1996 and she credited me and said how great the pictures were, what good memories they are and everything and it was so sweet of her. It just tells you everything you need to know about them. But it was my first real tour and it was I was just out for like a week, I think. I don't I don't think I went out that long. And, but that really gave me the bug for tour photography, concert photography. And so I did as many concerts as I could at the paper. Then when I moved to New York, I always had this in the back of my head. First of all, I'm a musician first, you know, before I got into photography and I just love the images and I love the environment. That's probably more of it than anything else. I love the people. I love the crews. I love the the, the big show. I'm not really a guy who, who's going to go to a million club concerts and like hang out with the band and like that. I want the big arenas and the stadiums. And I just, I love it because doing football, it's same I was going to say, doing you're sports. going from
0: football. It's like, you know, totally. high, high school has its advantages, but yeah,
1: it's not the same as being at the, the big same. events. Right. So, uh, when I was in New York, I always had it in my head. I'm going to do, you know, I was always as a freelancer, you're always trying to make contacts. You're meeting people, you're showing your work. And I just, I, let me think. I, one of the first tours I did was with uh, a smaller band, uh, a couple of smaller bands. Uh, I went out with Pat McGee, who's a friend of mine, obviously a good friend of mine now and vertical horizon. They were kind of big at the time. Buddy of mine was in that band who we went to uh, college together. And so I did like little tours like that. And then I worked my way up and eventually I got, I went on the road with the Bare Naked Ladies, the Canadian band. Okay. I and wouldn't I toured, have
0: expected that. I toured
1: with them on and off for about five years. Now, again, this is in between doing sports illustrated and any other concert gigs I could do any other music portraiture or whatever I could do. And eventually I wound up touring with them. And that was amazing. That was like my, probably my first like real long solid tour where I'm on the crew buses and, you know, I'm out for months at a time or whatever it is. And so, and I loved it. I just, I loved every minute of it. So I always had this goal. I used to tell my friends, I said, I'm going to be on a private jet with a band one day. And I said, I don't need to own a private jet. I don't, I'm not that guy. But I want to be traveling the world, playing, you know, shooting at stadiums on a private jet with a band. Everybody's like, yeah, yeah, Dave, whatever, buddy, sure, you know. And I was constantly trying to get to those bands. And whenever, you know, we're talking the Stones and U2 and Madonna and, you know, anybody, anybody who was that big and Bon Jovi, all those bands. And I was just for years and years and years, just, you know how it is. You, you like, you meet somebody who says, "Oh, my accountant's uncle's brother's son's friend is Bon Jovi's, you know, younger brother, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, whatever." And oh, can and I would can can you bring him a, get him a print of mine, get him a PDF of my business plan, whatever it is. Yeah, and eventually, it literally took years, but eventually, the one that I got the meeting with was Bon Jovi's management team, and yeah. I had that meeting and. The, you know, the short version is that night I was shooting the show Yeah, and they, by the end of the, by the end of the next night, they booked me for five gigs. And then by the end of that, I was on a crew bus. So yeah, I mean, it's just once I'm, I'm pretty good. Once I'm in the door, it's hard to get in the door, but once you get that foot in, then I can get my leg and the rest of my body. And yeah, that's door. right. So,
0: um, I, I, we were talking the other day and I was telling you that I, I always tell kids like, that's the job, like that's the job is getting, the job is getting, getting the, the job. job is the job. Yeah. Like when you get the job, then you gotta be good enough to not lose of it. Of course, you've got to have but,
1: the, the, the skill to do the job, of course. But, but yeah, that's the hard part is getting the job. And there's no easy answer. Again, yeah. everybody wants like a, you know, oh, I'm going to watch this YouTube video and learn how to get you know, be Bon Jovi's tour photographer and it just doesn't happen. That
0: yeah. Way, right. I can teach you how to do a bunch of things you need to know. Right. To and get I can that. give
1: you the right thought process of like how to, and I've actually done videos about that, about how to like market yourself and how to, you know, really make connections and those kinds of things. But it's still no guarantee. Then at some point it's like dating, it's a numbers game, right? Yeah. You just have to go after enough clients. And if, if I go after a hundred clients and one of them gives me the gig, then that's Bon Jovi, right? Yep. And everybody says, Oh my god, how did you're so lucky? How did you get that Bon Jovi gig? Yeah. Well, you don't know about the 99 I didn't get. Yeah, exactly. Because right? <laughs> I'm not posting about them on Instagram, right? <laughs> so uh, so that's just the way it works. So and that turned into a great gig. And literally, yeah, the first day I got on the private jet with John Bon Jovi and the band. I kind of had a moment to myself like, oh crap, this is like what I was talking about <laughs> for decades, you know? Yeah, and I gave myself a little pat on the shoulder for a second and then I got back to work. But uh, oh. but that was fun. And I spent the better part of 10 years traveling the world with them at stadiums, you know, every big stadium in the world. I mean, that band, if you're not a fan or, and I was honestly not a huge Bon Jovi fan. I mean, I was in the eighties, like I had Slippery and Wet, like everybody did back in that, in those days. But I hadn't really followed them that much over the last couple decades. But I'm a huge fan now, of course, and they are still massive. Like yeah. they still play stadiums all around the world. They sell out every arena in the U.S. They sell out all every stadium, and it's it's a dream gig because not only the fun of like you know, the, or I, I should say not only the fun, but the convenience of being on a private jet. It's pretty convenient to be on a private jet. It
0: seems like the most efficient way to travel. It is if really. I, had
1: to- I mean, that's why they do it. It's not like, it doesn't say Bon Jovi on the side. You know, like I'm sure, I think they did that in the 80s, you know, where it was about yeah. the bling and about the show, you know, now it's literally just... They need to get from point A to point B as fast as possible. And you you can get a police escort from the stadium right out of there before, you know, as they say, thank you, good night, and walk off the back of the stage right into waiting cars with a police escort. Bags are already packed. And right out of the stadium before the stadium's even emptied you know, before people even know yeah. the show's over, we're out the back of the arena of uh, the stadium. Yeah. Right to the private airport and within 5 minutes of walking up the steps of the plane we're in the air you know so we could be in the other in another country having dinner at a hotel while the crew is still loading out the show in another country it's pretty insane
0: not to say that i've looked into private jets much but when you really start thinking <laughs> Let about me the logistics to you how private jets yeah, work it's no, like if kidding. you have several people you need to get them from point a to b very quickly
1: and if you have the money.
0: And if you have the money, yeah, of course. you it's know, absolutely the best way to do like, it. But like, it is expensive. But like, legitimately, if you're going to, you're not going to fly them coach. So it's like, if you yeah. get a couple first class tickets, it's like, you're going to be paying over a thousand dollars. at true. You know, I don't know. And the
1: funny thing is, even with, with me, because there was always some debate about, you know, do I travel with the crew? Do I, every tour, I feel like, do I travel with the crew? Do I travel with the band? And it was cheaper for me to be on the private jet because they the jet's paid for. Yeah. Right. So if there's a seat, as long as there's a seat for me then it doesn't cost them any extra. If they got to fly me, you know, whether they're flying me coach or business or whatever, they still got to pay for that. So it's easier to put me on the plane. And obviously I've convinced them. And the, and John is one of the guys, John Bon Jovi is one of those guys who gets it. He understands the value in documenting these things for history. Um, and so having me with the band is important, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, there are times I'm with the crew and I'm documenting the crew as well, but, being with the whole, you know, it's really about the band. So being with them, because a lot of times, like I said, they're in a different country than the crew. So we might not see the crew for days at a time. So if if they go to lunch in Vienna and it's like some gorgeous place or whatever, to be able to make pictures of that is awesome, right? So, and John gets it, John. He I understand. sent him the
0: same message on Instagram and he just didn't even respond. <laughs> yeah, so, he, I, you know, said,
1: you need me out to document this. Yeah,
0: you're, you know there's different levels of value I guess you provide but um, (laughs) that's all good I I just
1: got in at the right place at the right time
0: I think it's cool to hear that that's appreciated I think that's the most exciting part of that story is because it's like you posted something the other day with Luke and Nicole and saying like how valuable it is that they let you have the access to tell their story I think Mm -hmm. that's really neat and I, I I agree with that but I think You know, whether it be working for a newspaper, photographing someone after a car accident or photographing a celebrity as they're working 40 days straight, both of those things allow, you know, they're very reliant on the access that's given by the person in front of the camera. You know,
1: it's I found a big switch when I went freelance, when I moved to New York in 2001, I went freelance. It was a big switch because at the newspaper and everything I had learned up to that point in college, you know, as a university photographer, and it was always as a journalist, as an editorial photographer. And in that case, my client is the newspaper, right? Mm-hmm. Or the magazine or whatever that is. And I need to make the best picture to document the event, whatever the event is, and to to do a portrait of the person, whatever it is, I'm documenting what's happening. I don't really care. Not that I don't care, but I don't, the subjects, if they don't like the way they look, it doesn't matter that much to me because I'm just documenting what it is, Right. But then, when you and I, I'm saying that more crassly than I really feel. But no, I know what
0: you mean because it's like it's your job about, is there to be there as a news person, right? Not to be there as a PR person for for that person. Yeah, and that's it's always something that's it's as you start to work in this career, those that haven't yet, it's a very I wouldn't say a weird situation, but it's like a thing. You know, it's like if I'm making a picture about someone who's doing something not awesome and they do give us the time it's like well i can't go in there and make a smiley happy pr totally photo of this lawyer who just screwed over totally. his client and i think or people are
1: savvy are are more savvy now than they used to be i mean they know they're not going to be portrayed really well if they yeah if it's a murder suspect coming out of court yeah um you know but you're not going to consciously try to make them look bad you're going to just Agreed. try to document the scene right yeah but they're probably not going to look that great if they're surrounded by people out coming out of the courthouse and, you know, trying to hide their face. And, you know, that yeah. just is what it is. But then when I went freelance, 99% of the time, my client, the person paying me, is the person in the picture or yep. representative of that person. That changes things. So, again, using the wedding photographer analogy, I always feel like you could have this amazing photograph of a couple and like on the beach and the clouds open up and the sun rays hit them and doves fly out of the bride's butt. And it's just like this perfect picture. And she looks at it and she says, Oh, my nose looks big. Yeah. Well, that picture goes away. Yeah. That's it. I mean, it doesn't matter what you think of the photograph. Yeah. It's they're paying the bill. That's just what it is. So I'm glad I had the editorial experience first in my career. So I kind of understood that. But now all I care about is that my client is happy really at the end of the day. You know, now, again, I have my own motives of, like I said, documenting for history and those kinds of things. But that also you say about that's the job. The job is getting the jobs. My job is also educating my clients in some ways, you know, and and working with Luke Combs now, you know, he's a young artist. He's 31 years old. He's, he's had amazing success and he's the biggest thing in country music right now and hopefully will be for a long time. But he's never had a, somebody like me around him all the time taking pictures. So, you know, in the beginning that took a little getting used to, and I think he's still kind of finding his way with that, um, of having, you know, a bunch of people, not just me, but a bunch of people around him all the time. And he gets recognized in public now. And, you know, that's if you've never had that and all of a sudden that's a thing, you know, John Bon Jovi knows by now 40 years in that he's, he can't go anywhere. He has to come in the back of the restaurant and police escorts and all that. Luke still, you know, he he was telling a story about uh you know walking into a drugstore, you know, CVS to buy whatever, sunscreen or something, and people were like, "Luke, Luke," and it took him a minute to realize they were talking to him, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. cuz it's still new. So having a photographer around, I think uh part of my job is to help them, you know, guide them a little bit, right? To understand that it is important. And even if they don't always like having a photographer around, um, and Luke's been great, Luke and Nicole have been great, but some clients don't really like it. It's important. And, you know, Luke especially, this part of his career, I mean, this is real history. The history of country music is being made right now. And I have access to document it in a way that nobody else has. So in 50 years, I mean, we look back at pictures of Waylon Jennings and whatever, you know, the early days of country and, you know, stuff from the Opry and things like that. Those are the pictures I'm making now. Yeah. And that hopefully in 50 years, they'll look back at that stuff.
0: I'm a big I'm a big country music fan. I'm a big Luke Combs fan, too. But I'm a big country music fan in general. And uh, it is interesting. It's awesome to hear you say that. But it is interesting now that I've moved to Nashville for a few years. Is You see these kind of in between photos more, you know And it'd be the same thing if you went to you know where the Ramones played and like you get near CBGB and stuff And mm-hmm. you'd start to see those in between punk rock photos and stuff But it's interesting. I've been in some restaurants and some you know I was in a recording studio this morning with somebody and you see these photos and you're like holy shit. Like like can you imagine me in the room with those two guys like yeah. you know, but at the time it was you know, whatever. It was just some lady named Dolly or just, (laughs) you know what I mean? It was just like another one of them. But, and I, when you talk about it, I always think about that too. It's like, yeah, can you imagine being there with Waylon or Willie and like, oh man. So, I
1: mean, it's obviously, I know how big Luke is now and I, and I, new country music is pretty new to me. I'm still kind of learning all the names, but there have been occasions where July 4th, two years ago, pre-pandemic, um, we played Willie Nelson's um, uh, festival that he has down in Texas, I Oh, think. I think, yeah. Willie's yeah. Picnic, I think it's called. Something like that. And, um, and after the show, Luke went on Willie's bus, and I was able to, like, work my way on the bus with Luke. And literally, I was standing there taking pictures of Luke Combs and Willie Nelson sitting across from each other on Willie's tour bus, yeah. just having a conversation. And it kind of, like, I had to take a second in my head and be like, holy crap, this is happening, you yeah. know? like this is a picture that hopefully they'll look back on and you know when luke was just a new young artist
0: i was gonna say, you know, yeah. in
1: 50 years you know i'm I, i'm i'm sure willie won't be around in 50 years and luke hopefully will be and it's like they'll look back at this and you know who knows i mean you don't know what pictures are going to stand the time to- the test of time but just to have that yeah the ones documented
0: the ones that aren't being taken are certainly not going to stand those at of time. You go. So it's like being there and having them. You know, it's just, oh, it's yeah. so cool. So, edu-
1: so educating your clients, you know, business wise, and just as far as the the importance of this stuff, I think is is a big part of the job. Also,
0: yeah. What is your in the, so we're going to do a Patreon little talk about what makes a good concert photograph. So if you're not a Patreon subscriber, go hit that up. Also, if you don't support Canon and Adorama, to support David. <laughs> help hook that up. And he's also got a YouTube channel uh, with Ask David Bergman where he goes over lots of tech stuff. And if you guys don't know about that, I'm kind of shocked. But it does exist if you're, yeah, if you're getting David into Bergman. it. Yeah, Ask David Bergman. So um, what is your what is like the daily life of being on a tour bus? I mean, I got a friend in the industry now with Kurt and, you know, meeting some other guys in the band and stuff, but like, you know, it's a little, a little atypical office. I'd have to assume being on a tour bus or a private jet or something like that. What's a day look like?
1: Yeah. It's certainly not a nine to five, uh, office job. Um, I mean, it's, it's some days are very similar and some days are completely different. I mean, yeah, some days you find yourself on a tour bus with Willie Nelson and Luke Combs. Right. But as far as the job itself, I mean, Country's different than rock. So rock tours, which I've always been on, rock tours, they do legs. So you'll do like two months in the U.S. where literally you just don't come home and and you'll get on the buses or you get on the plane or whatever it is. And you'll do maybe three shows a week. You know, Bon Jovi would do two or three shows a week, like Tuesday, Friday and Sunday, whatever it is, in different cities. So you, you do the show, you go to the next city, you have maybe a day or two off. For me, on the off days, I'm editing, right? Because mm-hmm. again, I shoot concerts like sports, so that means high volume. So I might shoot five thousand frames at a at a one concert, yeah. and so it takes me a good six to eight hours to deal with that, um, to go through all that and get to my final finals and deliver those to the clients and all that. Um, so I spend a lot of time in front of the computer. Um, so yeah, rock we'll just, you'll just go. And then you'll do say two months in the U S and then maybe you come home for two weeks and then you might do six weeks in Japan, Australia, and then home for a month. And then, you know, a month in Europe or whatever country's a bit different because it's a lot of back and forth. So country artists are all based out of Nashville. I live in New York city. I'm the one oddball on this tour. So I actually kind of commute into Nashville. I fly into Nashville just about every week, usually on Wednesday or Thursday. And I get on the tour buses Everybody else meets at the tour buses. They just have to drive there. I have to fly. But, um, and then we'll travel overnight on the tour buses. We sleep on the tour buses. Those of you that have never seen the inside of an actual tour bus, it's not like a Greyhound where it's just like rows of seats. We have, there's usually a lounge in the front with a couch and we've got cable TV or, you know, satellite TV and video games. And there's a fridge and a microwave and a sink and a bathroom and all that. And then in the middle, we call that bunk alley because that's where all the all the bunks are. That's where we sleep. Uh, a typical crew tour bus has 12 bunks. Usually you don't want more than about nine people on the bus because it gets really crowded. Um, eight or nine is a good number um, if you have that. And then you use a couple bunks, just we call them junk bunks. You throw your bags up there and then there's usually a little lounge in the back with another little couch. And there's a there's a usually a table back there, or a desk. So I, on my bus on this tour, I've I've commandeered the back lounge and made it my office. So I have all my charging station back there where I charge my batteries and I set up my computer back there. And I basically, everybody knows after a show, I'm just going to go back there and I close the door and I edit for hours and they all go to sleep before I do. And I usually edit all night. So I'm kind of all over the place, but, but uh, you get the idea there's uh, for, for, for a country we'll do usually three shows back to back and then come back to Nashville. And then I'll usually fly home. Either I'll stay in Nashville, depending on how quick the turnaround is, or usually I'll fly home. So I get home for a couple of days. So it's a bit more jarring in country for me because of the back and forth. But uh, whereas rock, once you kind of, it takes a couple of weeks and you kind of get into a routine and get into your the groove a little bit, get into the zone. But um, but it's great. Like I said, days off, I'm usually editing. And then show days, I'm running around shooting pictures, you know? Yeah. So it's it's really, it is fun. It's One of those lives that lives, lives that everybody thinks they want to do when they learn the reality of it. It's not it's not always as glamorous as there are certainly glamorous parts to it, but it's no sleep and it's long hours. And it's I mean, these country right now we're we're doing all these country festivals because it's summertime. We start our own. Luke starts his own tour in the fall and we'll be in arenas. But these are all outdoors. It was, you know it can be pouring rain, which it has been quite a bit. It's going to be hot. It's dusty and muddy. And, and, you know, you, you take a shower and the these trailer showers that they bring in, cause that's all you can get out in the middle of nowhere. And, uh, you know, there's certainly less than glamorous parts to it, but I wouldn't trade it for anything. I mean, I really love, I love the environment. I love, like I said, I love the people. Um, the pictures are so much fun to make and just to be, to be on the front lines of, of this is, is such a amazing thing.
0: I love it. So I have three questions that I end every episode with. Um, but before we get there, like, is there anything else you'd like to say or anything else you'd like to talk about that we might've missed?
1: Uh, no, the main thing is that, uh, and, and stay tuned for, for more announcements on this, but I do these workshops. I do these also, live. That
0: was my, my, that was my fourth question. That was today. the fourth question. Yeah, that was, so we were covering two words of one stone.
1: Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. I do these live concert photography workshops and, Uh, it's a pretty cool thing. I can take up to usually up to five photographers at a show and you come out and you spend the day with me. It's not a Luke Combs thing. It's a David Bergman thing. You're coming to learn from me. Um, and I'm going to teach you how to shoot. Uh, you know, I, I, call it a live concert photography workshop, but it's, it's sports, it's concerts. It's really anything that moves, right? Action photography. That's what you're learning. And you spend the day with me backstage at a show. And I teach you everything I've got. We're locked in a room and it's a, it's a lecture. It's a talk. I show you around. We do walk around the venue. I show you the tour buses. I show you what it's like to be on tour. I give you a taste of that. And then you get to shoot the show that night with me. Um, you know, we're still working out some details for the fall. So I'm not ready to announce anything just yet. But in 2019, I did like 50 of these. Yeah. And it really is a, a unique thing because nobody's ever done this before. I mean, there are sports workshops. There are fashion workshops. Nobody's ever done it with conscience because you need the right perfect storm of the right photographer who can teach it. And then the, the artist who's going to give, allow that, right. Which is so, this is such a, it's such a unique world and it's such a tight environment that to allow people backstage who aren't working, you know, for the tour is almost unheard of. Yeah. So, especially as photographers. Um, so I've, I've Luke and his management team have been so generous and so nice in allowing me to do these. Um, like I said, I'm hoping to do them again in the fall. So, uh, so it's really a unique experience that you can, you could never buy for any amount of money before. So, um,
0: I think that isn't lip service either. Like what he's saying is a hundred percent true. I get hit up a lot with people asking me like, well, can I just come to a sporting event with you or can I come? it's like, yeah, it doesn't,
1: it doesn't happen. It doesn't that work that
0: way. Like yeah. there's, there's no access yeah. and the same thing at concerts and anything. It's like, it just doesn't work that way. Yeah. So it is a really, it's an amazing experience. I have not done it yet. Um, maybe this fall I will. I don't know if it's really, I'm the target demographic, but, uh, but the thing is, is like when you get hands on with someone like that, your level of learning and speed of learning, is going to be massive compared to reading books, taking classes, hands off. Like there's just a lot of little in between pieces that come together when someone's sitting down with you and taking the time to say, we got to do it this way. Or once they see you working and they tell you,
1: yeah, we all pull out our gear and we can go over settings and all the, all the foundational stuff. And then just the logistics of like, okay, how do you manage changing light conditions and all those kinds of things as a concert is happening and the yeah. lights are blinking and everything's going crazy. And then dealing with the crowd and dealing with security and all those other kinds of little issues that you don't usually know until you're in, the, in that environment. Exactly right. Yeah. Yeah.
0: It's like, you know, ha- half of getting the work is doing it. The other half is uh, probably just arguing with security. <laughs>
1: yeah. There you go. <laughs> I, I always say, man, security are your best friends out there. Yeah. I always make friends with every security guard because... Yep. When the crap goes down, those are the guys you want on your side. That's so, right. Um, but that's, by the way, that's shoot from the pit is what I call that workshop. Right. So it's shootfromthepit.com is yeah. that website. So it's a little, little promo. Very little.
0: cool experience. That was going to be my next question. So um, so we have three questions in every interview with. Um, I generally forget them, and I always make the same joke and say that every episode. But um, they're very generic. Take them however you want them to be. Oh, boy. As, as deep. Or as esoteric as you want to be.
1: I'm a talker, so be careful.
0: Yep. So the first one is, um, what's one thing that you know now that you had wish you had learned when you were younger? Whether that's a lesson, technical, a life approach, anything.
1: Just to enjoy the moments more. Because I think sometimes we get so wrapped up in the work and wrapped up in the technology and the, you know, the marketing and trying to get the jobs and all that other kind of stuff. That at the end of the day, I mean, if you if you can make a living as a photographer, that's insane. Like, who gets to do that? How many people get to do that, really? Um, even if you don't make a living doing it, if you just make any money doing it or, or have any good experience doing it, enjoy it, man. It's like, I, I do now, but I think earlier on in my career, I was so worried about, you know, all the things you worry about. Getting jobs and supporting my family and all that stuff. And you know, you're hustling so hard and, and, but, but, you know, my worst day is still pretty darn good. Then, you know, a lot of people in the world don't have the advantages that we have. And, and it's, I don't take it for granted. So I, I think, you know, if I was, if I was talking to myself at 21, I think that's what I would tell myself.
0: That, that's the goal of the question. Cause there's a lot of people who are 21 listening to it right now. <laughs> there you go. Enjoy uh, it. So the, the second question is what's one thing or piece of gear or whatever that you just always got to have with you when you go to shoot.
1: Oh, boy. Uh, you know what? This is a silly one, but I find myself using this stuff all the time. Gaffer's tape. I got to tell you. You know, I mean, I know you're expecting me to say a lens or a body or something like oh that. No. Gaffer's tape is one of those things that there are so many uses for it's got to be gaffer's tape because it doesn't leave the residue. Now, if you leave it on for a long time, I mean, I've pulled gaff off old lenses from three years ago and it does leave a residue eventually, but if you're just using it for weeks or, you know, days, weeks, months, you'll probably be fine. It doesn't leave a residue, any residue. And there's so many times when you just need to stick something together. Right. I mean, a hood that's falling off, right. Just tape it back on. Um, I just just recently my one of my pocket wizard battery door broke on the wizard and just tape it up and it works fine. You know, I mean, I'm gonna get it repaired, but it works fine. There are a million uses for that stuff. Yeah. I mean, everybody talks about duct tape, and it's it's kind of the same kind of thing, but gaff is better than duct,
0: uh, hands down. I, I like to my little quick tip is wrap several wraps around your tripods or your monopods anywhere where it won't come in contact. Like, you know, you don't want to put it around the flash
1: case, my speed light case. I I have a bunch of gaff around that. So you don't have to carry the whole giant roll, but they also make little rolls. Now they make little tiny rolls of gaff. That's what I've got. I've got one of those. I've got at least two of those in every bag.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I put, I put like a white balance, like a gray card, white ball, gray, like color neutral gray card. And some gaff tape is always somewhere tucked away. Yeah. Um, and the last question is, um, uh, we've got a wide audience. Uh, it's a lot of younger photographers. It's some mid-career people. There's some photo editors that are always tuning in, um, that I know of. What's one thing you'd like to like kind of teach all of them or tell them it could be a soapbox moment. It could be, you know, uh, just, just something you wish the industry would listen to.
1: Oh, something for the industry. Oh boy. Um, you know what? I wish there was more and more quality, Business education for photographers. Um, I was thinking about this when you said about what would I tell my younger self, because this might, this would be a, a close second, would be to learn business skills. Because you can be the best photographer in the world, but if you don't know how to read a profit and loss and you don't know what your overhead is, and you don't know what it costs you to walk out the door, then you're gonna die penniless, right? If this is your only source of income. I know so many amazing photographers who just can't make a living because they don't know how to run a business. We are, excuse me, we are running a service business just like anything else. And so many creative people put their, they put their self-worth into how much somebody's willing to pay or whether they're willing to pay or not willing to pay. And you have to separate yourself from that. You're, you're running a business, but you're also creating at the same time, but they're different things. So, um, I wish, I mean, personally, I wish I had taken more business classes when I was younger just straight up business. I mean, photo business would be even better if there's, if you can find that, um, there aren't that many of those, but, uh, you know, just regular business classes, because again, knowing how to read a P and L, right. It's like, that's huge. I don't know many photographers that do that, that know exactly what it costs you to walk out the door and that empowers you once, you know, like, okay, this is my, my cost of doing business you know that like okay that job that i'm getting offered that sounds exciting and i really kind of want to do i'm actually losing money on that even though they're paying me i'm actually losing money and understanding things like copyright and you know how to do contracts and and marketing yourself and all of those things are so important and You could be, I hate to say this, but you could be a mediocre photographer and a great business person and make a lot of money and have a very good life and a very good career. Now, I'd rather be a great photographer and a great business person, but I'm still striving for both of those. But um, I do feel that if I had to choose, I'd probably rather be a great business person.
0: Yeah, I, I, yeah, I learned that lesson pretty young. That it was like you you meet people in the industry, and you're like, "How's this person still around?" How's I was like, "They're not the best photographer." And then, yeah, then yeah. you realize, like, "Oh yeah, but they really know how to balance they, the checkbook, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, they're pretty good at getting those jobs and yeah. figuring things so out." So
1: understanding the business side of it. So yeah, I, I, you know, if you're saying, you know, my sort of for the industry, I, I, I would, I wish that we could get that together and teach. Photographers. I mean, unfortunately, you know, photography is one of those things that anybody can kind of get into. So you're never going to catch everybody. I've tried to teach as many people as I can, but you can't catch everybody coming into the business. But I, you know, unlike the lawyers and the doctors who you can teach them as they go. Right. Um, Yeah. I, I, I wish there was a path that you could follow to at least learn the foundational stuff before you sort of get too far into it because not it, it not only does it hurt yourself, right? It definitely does because you're, you're leaving money on the table and you're, and you're not, you know, getting the money that you deserve for things, but it hurts the industry because it lowers the, the, the bar of everybody, you know, once, once a rate is set with a client, they're not going to pay more than that. Right. So even though they should, if they can get somebody free or really cheap, then they're going to do that. Now, again, I think it I don't. I think that's hard for young photographers to care about, and they maybe shouldn't care. They don't need to necessarily care about helping the whole industry, but help yourself too. You know, yeah. you're leaving money on the table, or you're costing yourself money, and you got to understand how all that works to be able to make a living. You wouldn't. You wouldn't open a bakery without understanding how the finances work. Yeah. Right. So this is no different, um, you know, than any other service business.
0: Big time. Totally agree. Yeah. So well. There you go. The last thing to ask is where can people find you? Yeah.
1: So there you go. So my, I guess the biggest thing I'm on is Instagram. It's just David Bergman is my my Instagram. I'm on Twitter, David Bergman. Uh, Facebook, I don't do that much anymore. But, I don't use Facebook. Uh, yeah, I'm David Bergman Photo on Facebook. What else? My regular What's site YouTube?
0: is... Your YouTube, well, S. David so David YouTube
1: is, S. David Bergman is on Adorama's yep. YouTube channel. But so they can find him on there. Yep. I mean, I'm sure you can just Google S. David Bergman. But, yeah. but if you go to the Adorama YouTube channel, there's... Uh, I think we have over a million subscribers now, which wow. is crazy. Yeah. And I'm a Canon Explorer of Light. So all that Canon, I do a lot of stuff with Canon, which is awesome. They've been If so anyone supportive. from Canon's
0: listening and you need another Explorer of Light, I've <laughs> yeah. got like a hundred grand worth of gear and I'd love to have a discount on the next hundred grand. There Thank you.
1: There you go. You can get a platinum membership with CPS. I have a platinum membership. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> which is awesome. But um, yeah. So yeah. And then the workshop, shootfromthepit.com. Yeah, those are going to be exciting.
0: One. I think that's like the big thing. If, if you have any interest in this, that's a... Like I said, I think that's gonna go a lot further than the sum of its what it says on paper. I think you're gonna you'd get a lot more out the, of that. The biggest thing think. when I
1: I usually send a survey afterward because I want to know how people's experience was. And they always say, I thought it was had to be too good to be true. Like I didn't I read the description, I was like, there's no way that's what it is. Yeah. And then they come and they go, It was better than I even expected. That's so that's amazing. Yeah. So it's been fun for me. I mean, I'm later in my career, so it's like I feel like I don't have anything to prove, I don't have anything to hide. So I'm I'm an open book. I'll tell you anything you want to know. I mean, I'll I'm not gonna maybe on a podcast, but on you know privately, I'll talk numbers with people. I'll tell people you know not my, not what I make for a year, but you know like yeah, in what, general realistic. how to deal with clients, yeah, exactly that kind of stuff, and all that stuff. I'm happy to talk about and to give people that experience that I get to do every day, to give it to them once you know is just blows people's minds. So it's kind of fun for me to to be the host of The Price is Right and give away money, you know? So that's, yeah. it's not quite like that. But it's, you know, just to give people an experience that they can't get otherwise. So is really cool. fun.
0: Very yeah. cool. Yeah. Well, um, that is going to wrap up the normal episode. Uh, David has a flight shortly. We're going to squeeze in a quick Patreon episode. I'm going to take him to the airport. Um, and uh, thanks so much for coming on, man.
1: Thanks, buddy. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Reciprocity Podcast. Please take a moment to subscribe and rate us 5 stars on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: If you found value in this podcast and want to learn even more, head over to patreon.com/reciprocitypodcast to support the show.